Well, this morning's study will again be in the first chapter of John, starting in verse 10. It says, He was in the world, that is Jesus, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become the children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time this morning. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, this morning as we look into your word once again, to seek to understand it, as we seek to grasp it and apply it to our lives, Help us, Lord. We depend completely upon your Spirit to gain any true knowledge and to gain any knowledge of your truth at all. You have given your church two things to equip her, the Word and the Spirit. and The two are inseparable. One apart from the other will severely cripple her. In light of that, we ask that you bless us this morning, that you bless Grace Bible Fellowship, With your presence through the Spirit, bring your word to light. Help us to understand it. Help us to reap from it the deep things of God. Enlighten our hearts to have true understanding. In Jesus' name I ask this. Amen. Last time I ended with uh, verse 9, but I would like to reiterate some of the thoughts since it flows perfectly with today's passage. So here it is again. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. So the true light here, I believe, refers to the unique nature of the light. It is not true versus false light, although he is the true light. But this isn't John's point, I don't think. John wants to communicate this to us. A light has come into the world, and this is unlike all other lights. Coming into the world, he brought light to everyone. He brings spiritual light to men as the creator and source of life and light. He illuminates men's hearts, which is absolutely necessary for spiritual life. To believe in a Savior, I have to first be brought to a realization of how, of my own sinfulness and God's absolute holiness. So without the enlightening that the Spirit of God brings, I cannot see these things. When I am unaware of my spiritual state, and someone comes to me and says, you need a Savior, I will go, Savior from what? I need to first know why I need a Savior. You see, as a fallen son of Adam, I come into this world spiritually blind. I have this veil over my eyes that keeps me and keeps all of us from seeing the things of the Spirit. This veil makes me blind to my true state and the glories of Jesus Christ. So this is why we need the Spirit and the Word. So here's an example of blindness in John 3. Let's turn there, if you will. And verse 3.
This is where Nicodemus has come to Jesus by night in secret of the other Pharisees. He recognizes and confesses that Jesus is a teacher from God because Jesus performs these signs that apart from God no one could do. Jesus, knowing the state of his heart, says this to him. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So here is the same issue again of sight, just like in verse 1, or chapter 1, sorry. The need for eyes to see the things of God. We need, we need a new birth, a supernatural act of God where He awakens us. In the same way, He must grant to us sight. He does this by giving to us light, which is the life. By being born again, our eyes are opened and we can see. Before this, we are blind. So like Nicodemus, with our natural eyes, we might see Jesus as a great teacher that performs mighty works that could only come from God. But unless the light of Christ comes to penetrate through the scales that cover our spiritual eyes and removes that veil of unbelief, we will not see him for who he truly is or for who we truly are. won't see us as guilty sinners standing condemned before a holy God, sinners who desperately need a Savior. Jesus is this perfect Savior that we need. Jesus is, God is absolutely holy, and we are not. So this is the light that has come into the world. That is the light that men do not know. This is the light that men do not recognize. In verse 10, this is clearly seen. Back in John 1, verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. This verse talks of such spiritual blindness and unbelief. This morning I believe we'll see a lot of bad news. I think we'll see the gloom that comes from rejecting the light. I believe we'll see the total inability of man when left to himself. And then I hope to see the good news because we first understand the bad news. The good news being that God did what God did by sending His Son made in the likeness of men. He did for us the impossible because with God all things are possible. So John says he was in the world, meaning he was physically here amongst us. He walked with men, he talked with men, he ate and drank and slept because he was truly man. He entered into true human experience. He had the same human experiences as us, except what? Without sin. He was perfect. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Still in verse 10. So this is a sovereign creator God coming to dwell with men, his creatures. As we'll see later, he came to his own, the ones he created. So moving on to the last portion of verse 10, yet the world did not know him. When someone mentions spiritual blindness, this is exactly what I think of. Creatures who are made in the image of their own creator, who are so lost, so blind, that when their creator comes and makes his own tent in their midst and lights the whole campground around them, and they say, what light? We didn't see a light. 
So this is the level of human depravity. It affects the whole of the human race and it affects them totally. Everyone is under the power of the evil one and unless God intervenes, they are blind and lost in darkness. So so consumed by the darkness that when they meet the Lord of lights, they do not recognize Him. This is blindness. So in verse 9 we see, we see He came to His own. So in a narrow sense, I would take that to mean to His own people, His chosen ones, the nation of Israel. But in a broader sense, He came to all of us. All of, all of us as well as everybody else in the world are His in the created sense. So He made this world, this universe, as we saw back in verse 10, the world was made through Him. So He made you and I, everyone and everything in this world is owned by Jesus Christ. There is not a one walking this world that exists apart from His power. We saw this in verse 3 as well. All things were made through Him, and without Him was nothing made that was made. So there is not a one that exists that wasn't made by Jesus and is therefore owned by Him. So He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. Verse 10 and 11 explains to us the blindness and the unbelief of the people. We see in verse 12 and 13, of what God did of necessity and had to, do over, had to do to override people's unbelief. And yes, God can override men's unbelief and will have to do so for anyone to even come to Him. We'll look a little more closely at 12 and 13 in a bit, but first let's talk about what it means to receive Him in verse 11. It says, They did not receive Him they being His own. Keep in mind, receive and believe in the Gospel of John are used interchangeably. In other words, to receive Him is to, in essence, believe in Him. You can't believe in Him unless you receive Him. You can't receive Him unless you have believed in Him. These are kind of same, uh, two sides of the same coin here. So... So in the world, we hear a lot about receiving Jesus or receiving Jesus into your heart. For much of evangelicalism, this means tipping your hat toward Him one time or walking an aisle one time. Much of it, much of this kind of receiving Jesus does not result in any true change. This is a very shallow kind of event. But the Bible tells us this is not the way you receive Him. The Bible tells us Jesus is Lord. So when you receive Jesus, you receive Him for who He is. You accept Him for who He has revealed Himself to be. And you welcome Him into your life as He is. So when He says He is the sovereign Lord and Creator of the universe, you accept Him for that. And when he says he made them male and female and the union, union called marriage as a lifelong union between one man and one woman, you accept that. 
When Jesus reveals in His Word, this is how you should act as Christians. You submit to His teaching. When Jesus says this is how God desires to be worshipped, you seek to worship Him in that manner. That's what it means to receive Him. And when Jesus says this is, your, this is to be your attitude toward your neighbor, you submit to Him. So my point is, Jesus is our Creator. We are His creatures. And as our Creator, He gets to define how we should live and not live. He knows us better than we know ourselves. So when we receive Him, we accept Him for who He ex- exactly who He is, and we welcome into our, Him into our lives as He is. But John tells us His own people did not receive Him. His people did not welcome Him. Israel did not welcome Him. The world did not welcome Him. And we did not welcome Him. We may ask then, so did Jesus fail? No, because John says some did receive Him. See this in verse 12. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. So some did receive Him and believe in His name. So in this verse we have both receiving and believing. There were those who did welcome Him and totally entrust themselves to Him. They readily received Him into their lives and shifted all their trust from themselves to Him. That's what it means to have faith in the Savior. So it says they believed in His name. There is something unique and special about the name. His name is often used in Scripture. And I think the name does not merely refer to the name Jesus, but who it is that bears the name. I believe this because when I think of, say, the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons, they too have a Jesus. And they speak in His name. But they have a false Jesus. So they use the name Jesus, but since He is not the true Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, there is no power in the name in that case. There is no other name under heaven given by which we must be saved. It is receiving Him and faith in the name that brings salvation. And it is the ones who have received Jesus and placed placed faith in His name it is those that Jesus then gives the right to become the children of God. That's the last portion of verse 12 there. He gave them the right to become the children of God. In other words, He gave them authority. We don't give authority to ourselves to become children. He does. It says all, all authority in heaven and, and on earth has been given to Jesus elsewhere. But in a day like ours, we have all kinds of people promoting the idea that salvation is in the hands of the sinner. The sinner can choose God. 
And the sinner can make the decision when he's ready. But Scripture tells us it is not so. The Scriptures tell us today is the day of salvation. And that God has to draw you to Jesus. He does not promise He will draw you all your life. He may be drawing you today, but there is no guarantee He will be drawing you tomorrow. So those who have come to faith in Jesus, He gives the right to become children of God. John then goes on in verse 13. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So this is a supernatural birth. In verse 12 we have how one becomes saved. In verse 13 we're told who does the work involved in salvation. So who are born? To live we need first to be born. Everyone that ever comes to life on earth is born. But the scriptures also tell us everyone is born dead. How does that make any sense? Well, Scripture tells us this plainly when we look in the garden when God commanded Adam and Eve not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He also told them plainly of the consequences of disobedience. He said, if you, if you eat of the tree, you will surely die. Well, they did eat of it and they immediately died spiritually. So the scriptures portray a picture of all descendants of Adam being dead men and women, yet they're walking around and they're eating and drinking. That sounds like life to us. Yet the scriptures tell us they're dead, and this means they're all born spiritually dead as children in Adam. All people are dead except for believers. The Bible tells us believers in Jesus Christ have been brought to life. Formerly, they were dead, but they have been born again. The ones who have received Him, who have become the children of God, these ones were born. They received spiritual life. But where, where did this life come from? It didn't come from them. It didn't come from us. So John says it's not of blood. In other words, the new birth does not come from my blood family because they were Christians. The new birth is not dependent on the natural. Just like the Jews were not saved because Abraham was their father. And I am not a Christian because my father was a a Christian or my grandfather. So we see this life did not come from blood nor did it come from the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. So John is making sure here that we understand this birth does not come from man at all. We'll see later it comes from God. All of it. So we see this life also did not come as a result of our will. The flesh did not will him. You and I did not will him. We did not choose him. We were dead. Dead people don't choose. In fact, the Bible says that we didn't even seek him. There are no God seekers in the world. Yeah, I know someone will say to me, 
but he really not wants to follow God or he seems to be seeking after God. Yet the Bible says no one seeks after God unless we're being sought by God. So God must seek, first seek those who are lost. And that is exactly what Jesus came to do. So I believe verse 13 deals directly with salvation and specifically with the new birth or regeneration. It brings out the divine nature of the new birth. It is not by descent of Christian parents. It is not by our choice. And it is not by our own striving that we become children of God. So regeneration is referred to as being born again. The Bible uses the natural uses the natural to illustrate the supernatural. It uses natural birth because it represents life. It represents newness. Jesus says in John 3 verse 5, if you want to turn there again. Still speaking to Nicodemus about the new birth. So Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So born of water here refers to the physical birth or the natural birth. And then born of the Spirit is the supernatural birth, the second birth. Jesus says without the second birth, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So both John 3 verse 5 and John 1.13 make it abundantly clear that the new birth does not come from man, but it comes from God. It says, born of the Spirit, born of God. So let's turn back to the last part of verse 13, chapter 1 there. So the last part of 13 here, the phrase, but of God. So a little three-letter word, but. Up to this point, it sounded very gloomy because of man's inability to do anything for himself. But then, then John tells us what God did. But of God, born of God. Isn't that wonderful? This has huge implications. The new birth is completely of God. It means all our fleshly striving, all our willing in the flesh, have no part in it. It does not bring about the new birth. So this then frees us up totally. Just like when we were born of water, we did not strive or determine the time of our birth. It was out of our hands. Think of it. Our mothers gave birth to us. They gave birth to us. It means, it means she was the one active and we were passive. And so it is being born of the Spirit. If you want to turn back to John 3 there, verse 8. Jesus still speaking on regeneration and the mystery of the new birth says this, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. 
And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. It says, so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. It is supernatural. It is of the Spirit. And it is in the control of God. So he is free to grant this life to whom he wishes and when he wishes. Notice it says, the wind blows where it wishes, not where we wish or they wish. It is good and proper to desire all men to be saved and to have broken hearts for lost men. But we must understand that all of our praying, all of our willing does not bring it about still. It's still God who does the saving. And it's not saying that prayer doesn't work. It's not saying that we shouldn't have broken hearts for the lost, that we shouldn't. Scripture still says the wind blows where it wishes. So we still cannot control the Spirit or tell the Spirit, save this one now or anything like that. So this is completely God-centered. This God-centered way of thinking isn't a very popular thing maybe, but because we like it when God is in control of the weather or nature or some tragedy. We want Him to be in control then. Because such things are so far outside of our control, it brings us great comfort knowing we have an infinitely good and all-powerful God who cares for us and is in control of events in our lives. I was reminded recently of a little phrase, God gave them into their hands. This is a common phrase in the Old Testament. So what does it mean for God to give a whole nation into the hands of His people Israel? Well, I believe it requires God to be God. It is by definition what it means to be God. These nations were frequently much bigger than the tiny nation of Israel. But God gave them into their hands. And God says that's the only reason you will be able to conquer them. This paints a picture of such tremendous power and sovereignty. So I believe we must confess that God is able to to control nations or storms. But what about salvation? Isn't salvation of God? The Bible says things like, born of God, born of the Spirit, Salvation belongs to the Lord. So I believe we must likewise confess that salvation is in the hands of our awesome God and it is all of God. It flows from Him. It originates in Him. He possesses the very life that is called eternal life which He grants to us. How can we then say, God, you can, you can be in control of these major events or nations, but I will take care of this salvation thing. And I know most people won't say it like that, but it kind of sounds like that when people say they have to cooperate with God with their wills, and in fact, God's grace alone is not sufficient without my contribution, whatever that may mean. 
my response to him or my seeking him or humbling myself. So I think what John has made very clear in these few verses is that it's all of God. He is the one who sent his son. He is the one who became flesh. He is the one who sent, sorry, he's the one who lived the perfect sinless life. He went to the cross to die for our sins. He rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father. He always intercedes for us. How great a Savior and how great a salvation. So we recognize God does the giving and we do the receiving. God is working and we are passive. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I thank you for this church body. Thank you for these brothers, these sisters. Lord, I ask this morning as we have grieving members in the body. Lord, our hearts grieve for them. And when one member of the body hurts, the whole body hurts. So Lord, we ask that you may bring comfort and a strong hand to uplift them. Lord, I thank you that we can come to you for all our needs. Most of all, Lord, I thank you for what you have done to save us. If you had not done what you did on the cross, we would never be able to approach you. This morning from the Gospel of John, we saw where we came from. We saw how dark our lives were before you came into our lives. We saw just how dark this world is, and we saw the utter helplessness of all the children of Adam. And Lord, we saw how your own people rejected you and how they disbelieved and how we likewise rejected. Then we saw what you did to make new life possible. Lord, you shone through the thick gloom with your supernatural light. You enlightened us and caused us to be born of God by your word and your spirit. Lord, your word is real, your word is amazing, your word is clear, and it is alive. As we read in Hebrews 4.12, For the word is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Lord, your word is eternal and will never pass away. Help us always to be in awe and fear of your word, rightly dividing it. Help us to be students of your word and to apply it to our lives. Train us by your word. Help us now as we go from here to live in light of your word. Help us to bring your message of good news to the dark world. 
Lord, I pray for those of us that may not have received you or believed in your name yet. I pray that you would convict them of sin, that you might draw them to yourself by your strong grace. Lord, I pray that you might cause them to be born again by the Holy Spirit of God. Quicken hearts today, Lord. Help us, the church, to bear witness of the light to all who need it. Cause us to shine bright in your kingdom. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.